Hey, dear listeners, thank you for joining us once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letter you.org. I'm Jono. Joining me, of course, my very good friend, Tanakh Tura, co-host and author of The Moses Scroll. The website is themosesscroll.com. That's themosesscroll.com. Ross Nichols, g'day, mate. Hey, Jono. How are you? Doing pretty well. I'll tell you what, there's a lot in the, a uh, lot of articles coming out. We're seeing them in uh, that excellent website, thetorah.com. Love it. Uh, we're, seeing, we're seeing a lot of articles on uh, academia.edu. Mm-hmm. Some really good stuff pertaining to Deuteronomy. Yep. And uh, it, it never ceases to amaze me, though, Ross, that <laughs> there, <laughs> there's so much speculation in regards to Deuteronomy um, that, con- that concurs with the Moses Scroll, and yet it is still failing to get the attention that it deserves. I think it's growing. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and as I speculated to you the other day, I think that there are people who secretly do believe that this is, of course, an authentic scroll. They're not saying it, but they are saying in some articles, they're saying, you know, I reckon uh, Deuteronomy originally would have looked something like this. Right. Uh, and then they described the Moses Scroll. Well, I mean, we, I, I don't know that I remember the title, but you and I discussed earlier this week an article that, that showed up on, was it the Torah.com? Oh, oh the Torah.com. Yeah, I think it, it was, yeah. And it described various Dead Sea manuscripts of Deuteronomy. And one of those, and I think that probably spurred your comment, mentioned, oh, and it was 7.1 centimeters in height, and it was this many 12 lines. lines yeah. and, <laughs> and I thought, yeah. Oh my gosh! You wanna you wanna see a scroll like that? Let me show you one, because they, yeah, yeah. as you know, they they thought in in eighteen eighty three they said, oh, this has clearly been cut from the lower margin, the seven point one centimeters. No oh, scroll yeah. is seven. No scroll does that. We don't have scrolls like that, Ross. Clearly, this has mm-hmm. just been made up, and yeah, no, it's um. It's crazy. It's crazy. But but I'm telling you, it is, I feel confident that it will have its day. And and hopefully some of our programs, once it really shows up, maybe we'll find it. We'll get it tested. We'll go through all the right procedures. And then they'll say, Mm. you know, I wish there was a program that talked about this. And we can (laughs) say, go to truth to you. We've been talking about this for two years. We've known this for years. Come on. That's right. They'll Get catch up. They'll catch up. Let me yeah, tell you, no, it's always uh, initially, I think, a great find. People think that you're a madman until it's proven. So we'll, you know, it, slowly but mm-hmm. surely the world will come around and catch up with Jono and Ross. But that's okay. That's right. <laughs> In the meantime, uh, we are working our way through the text of the Moses Scroll. You know, we're not that far in that I can't start from the beginning, Ross. Shall I just do that? Do it, do it. I'm going to start from the beginning. Uh, It begins, so the scroll that was discovered in the Wadi Mujib in the mid-1860s is a copy of the Moses Scroll. It begins with an editorial uh, headnote Mm -hmm. and then continues with the words of Moses. It begins like this. These are the words which Moses spoke according to the mouth of Jehovah to all the children of Israel in the wilderness across the Jordan in the Aravah. Uh, we're going to be we're going to be coming back to that obviously because we're going to be talking about the itinerary yep. uh, today. We'll, we'll be there in a minute. Mm-hmm. It begins uh, the Moses, the actual Moses scroll because of this. Elohim, Elohim spoke to us in Horeb, saying, "You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and set out for yourselves and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all the dwellers of the Aravah in the mountains and in the foothills and in the uh, at the sea at the coast of the sea." And we set out from Horeb. 
and we walked all that great and fearful wilderness which uh, you saw, and we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said unto you, all right, you have come to uh, you have come today to the hill country of the Amorites. Go up and possess the land, as he spoke to you. Uh, but you were unwilling to go up, and you murmured, and you said in hatred of us to exterminate us. And Elohim was angered, and he swore, saying, As I live, surely all the people who have seen my signs and wonders, which I did these ten times, since they have not listened to my voice, they will not see the good land that I swore to give their fathers, except their little ones, Caleb, the son of Yephuneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, who stand before you. They will go there. I will give it to them. But you... Turn for yourselves and set out towards the wilderness in the direction of the Sea of Reeds until the entire generation of that men of the rebellion have completely died off from the midst of the camp. And you dwelt in Kadesh Barnea until the men of the rebellion had completely died off from the midst of the camp. That's where we're up to. And we finished uh, last time we spoke talking about, quote, the men of the rebellion, because in Deuteronomy, what, what are they called? Uh, instead of the men of the rebellion, you have the this armed group of men called the men of war. I guess is the, the way men of war. It sounds good, you know, but it, but but it it's not. Good. But it's not. It's not in the Moses scroll, and we have to wonder why. Well, and we did wonder why uh, last time we spoke, and yep. I thought that maybe it was an attempt. And this is Deuteronomy chapter two, verse fourteen, is where that appears. And I suspected perhaps it's an attempt to vindicate the men in, in some way, you know, in some light, mm-hmm. uh, by referring to them as warriors or men of war or, or fighting men, as it appears in various English translations. Giving that further thought, uh, just further to, to that over the last uh, week, uh, I think it's more likely that the, the text has been amended, Ross, to concur with Numbers 145, which identifies men 20 years old and above as being able to serve in Israel's army. Hmm. Um, And then Numbers 1429 uh, identifies, which identified those who were uh, to die in the wilderness as a result of the rebellion, quote, from 20 years old and upward. Hmm. Thus, you know, putting those two together, you've got all the, the men of war in Deuteronomy, but simply the men of the rebellion in the Moses scroll. I think it's uh, unlikely that if the Moses scroll was a forgery, the forger would have chosen to change the text here. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that catches me is that last statement that you made. Why would a forger go to extreme uh, to the extreme of changing something which is so much a yeah. part of the text? I mean, it, it's so reason? easy. It's so easy just if you're going to write the men of that generation, you wanted to find the group that has to die off, you would simply call them the men of war. I mean, why would you change that? It doesn't make sense. Why would you but, change it? But I tell you, if you notice, as Jono read those first few verses, uh, what you get immediately is a sense that we're talking geography. Everything almost is, you know, you God spoke to us at Horev. Uh, turn, do this, go here, go there. We're dealing with a an itinerary, a travel mm-hmm. itinerary. And Jonah, I wanted to, if if I can, before we jump back into the text, can I mention just a little bit about why it's important that we have a wilderness journey itinerary mm. in the text? I think it's Please. important. Um, one of the things that we've been working on is trying to identify from the text of the Pentateuch what exactly did Moses write? And we've covered a lot of that in previous discussions, so I won't necessarily get into that, except that in the text of the Pentateuch, 
most of which is written in third person. And the Lord spoken to Moses and so forth. It's mm-hmm. not a first person account. But there are seven references to Moses writing something. And we I cover this in the sure. Moses scroll. Now, one of those, Jono, comes from Numbers chapter 33. So I just wanted to touch that verse first before we get into geography. And in Numbers chapter 33 and verse 1, it says, These were the marches. Now this I'm reading from the JPS. These were the marches of the Israelites who started out from the land of Egypt, troop by troop, in the charge of Moses and Aaron. Moses recorded the starting points of their various marches as directed by the Lord. Their marches by starting points were as follows. And then what follows in Numbers chapter 33 is a list of 42 stations. 42 stations which are listed out uh, that are presented as, um, how would you say, I guess chronologically detailing the journey from beginning to end. And Mm -hmm. notice that it says Moses wrote this. Now what's interesting about these 42 stations is that we have other groupings of orders of marches listed from the time they leave Egypt. Some occur as early as Exodus chapter 14 after they cross the sea. Uh, In chapter 15 is sort of a celebratory text And then you begin seeing, and we left here, and we went here. When you put these side by side, what Exodus records, Leviticus gives us none of that. Uh, The book of Numbers also records some of the journeys in the wilderness. But if you align those various texts side by side, they don't agree. Nor do these always agree with what we get in Deuteronomy chapter 1 through 3. So I'm not even talking about the Moses scroll yet. We get some very complex difficulties when we think about the geography of the wilderness itinerary. Now, one thing that I would like to add is that Deborah Hearn, she's an Aussie, Oh, yeah. Uh, She's at Avondale College, New South Wales. Uh, If I Mm. ever come to see you, we'll just have to jump in a car and go there. I hope it's not very far from your house. But she is working on a Ph.D. right now uh, in biblical studies, specializing in the Exodus itineraries. Mm -hmm. And I will say that she agrees, or I should say maybe I agree with her, that uh, Horev she identifies as Har Karkun. So, mm-hmm. so that's interesting. But We've but, been there. Yep, we've been there. But what is interesting about the geography, when we talk about geography of the wilderness itineraries, there are some toponyms or toponyms that appear here in Numbers 33 that occur nowhere else. Uh, and, and I... I love the notes in this JPS. So let me look at this. Just for for everybody, just explain what a toponym is. Okay, these are actually uh, the names applied to these certain geographical locations. So so what we have is we have these particular names that are given uh, throughout these texts, and and that's what we're talking about there. Mm -hmm. Now, the footnote in the Jewish Study Bible on this particular note, uh, referring to the list in Numbers 33, says, 
This record encompasses the itinerary of Israel's travels from their point of departure in Egypt to their final encampment in Transjordan. Notably, some toponyms appear here for the first time being absent from accounts of the Exodus and other biblical texts. See chapters 1 through 3 of Deuteronomy, for instance. And it goes on and it describes other difficulties related to this particular journey. Now, the reason that I bring that up, Jono, and the difficulties associated with geography is that there is something very interesting about the Moses Scroll. In 1883, on the 9th of May, Shapira writes a letter to Hermann Strock in Berlin. He wants to bring the scroll out of the Holy Land to Germany to show various scholars his, his greatest discovery of all time. So he writes a letter, and part of that letter involves geography, and it's one paragraph I'd like to read. He, he yep. wants to stress to Strzok that this manuscript is unique because, and here he says, there's no repeating and misplaced passages are to be met in our manuscript, especially in a topographical point of view. The order of the last journeys and battles are in the best order. So first, through Seir, then through the wilderness of Moab, then through Moab, which seems to lay between the brook of Zered and Arnon, then the passage over the Arnon, the battle with Sihon and taking his land from Arnon into Yavok, the passage over Yavok to the land of Ammon, the battle of Yazer, we, I think our English says Jazer, and then the forced battle with Og, the, uh, the king of the Bashan. Then the mm. returnees southward to uh, the plains of Moab opposite Beit Peor, then a love affair with the daughters of Moab and women of Midian and the sacrifice to Peor. Lastly, mm. the battle with the Midianites. Now, I know I read through a lot there quickly. I don't expect people to follow all of that geography, but here's his point, Jono. He says that of everything he's read, the geography makes sense in the Moses scroll. Mm. Now, when he brings the scroll to Berlin, Strzok has an issue with his eyes. I don't know what it is. I just know that Shapira relates that, and Strzok later admits his eyes were messed up, uh, and he couldn't really study the manuscript, so he just sort of out of hand dismisses it, says, get that forgery out of here. My eyes are bothering me anyway. <laughs> so, so Shapira takes it to Guta. Now, here's an interesting thing, mm. and this is only one sentence from Guta's work. Remember, Guta, in, on August 31st, 1883, he publishes fragments of a leather manuscript containing mm -hmm. Moses' last words to the children of Israel. And in his opening, he says this. Um, he had shown this, meaning the manuscript, to Herr Professor Strzok in Berlin, but since he, due to an eye condition, could not attend to scrutinizing it, Shapira came to Leipzig in order to receive counsel from me as to what there was to do in the matter. The text of the manuscript offered something peculiar in the topical, topographical, more correctly, arguably geographical and ethnographical regard. And thus he believed that its content might also especially concern my special studies about Palestine. 
So Guta is seemingly to Shapira the right guy for this because Shapira mm. knows that Guta, first of all, they're friends, but he knows that Guta had published previously a book on the geography of the Holy Land. And so the point is, everything that he wants him to look at, he wants him to recognize like he has, hey, the geography makes sense. Now, one more thing happens. When he leaves Germany, he goes to London. Shapira meets with Condor, um, mm-hmm. and, and he also meets with a guy by the name of Bassant. Walter Bassant is the secretary of the PEF, Palestine Exploration Fund, at the time. So when the two discuss, now this is a quote from Bassant's autobiography. He says that after they met, here's what Condor tells him. He says, uh, I observe that all the points objected to by German critics have vanished in this document. The mm-hmm. geography is not confused, and Moses does not record his own death. So I begin today's program, Jono, with the question, uh, is, does, let me say it this way, does the Moses scroll offer us a clean geography that makes sense? And, and then secondly, is the geography in the Pentateuch confused? Now, I'm ready. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, let me put it this way, Ross. If I, uh, uh, you know, we we do the Tanakh tour every year. Yeah. You know, COVID has has put us behind a little bit, and we're doing this again in uh, November 2022. uh, And there's room on the bus, dear listeners. And by the way, we're also doing a um, uh, a an add-on tour after the Tanakh tour, uh, which we're calling the Moses Country Tour, where we will be taking people to Har Karkum. Uh, so there is room on the bus for that as well. Now, when I organize an itinerary, Ross, mm-hmm. there's a lot that goes into that, and you help me with that, and uh, so you know what goes into that. There's, you know, we've got to look at what are the um, locations, key locations that we want to visit. Whereabouts are they? How long does it take to travel there? How long are we likely to stop there? Yep. And where is the next uh, uh, location we want to go? And we need to streamline all of this in order to make maximum use of our travel time. We want to minimize our travel time. We don't want to go back. If we were to go back and forward, if we were to zigzag back and forth, Ross, right. I don't think we would have such a high rate of return that we do. That's right. Uh, as it is, we have like 70% of people return on Tanakh tours um, because we really do maximize the time that we have in Israel visiting some very, very cool places. But if we were to not care so much about uh, precision with the itinerary and we were just sort of zigzagging back and forth and, uh, you know, double-backing and, and, and all this sort of right. stuff, people, would, people wouldn't come the next year round. That's all I'm saying. I'm just That's right. That. And, and it doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. Like you said, you're not going to double back. You're not going to pass a site of interest go to another site, and then go backwards and then turn around and do it again. I mean, like I'm telling you, Moses Moses would fire me. Moses would fire me, and Joshua would not not hire me for the next tour. And we are on those tours, by the way, on a lovely transfer coach where you're in air conditioner and you can charge your iPhones. Imagine if you're (laughs) leading 603,550 males plus women, children, goats, and chickens. If you're doing it on (laughs) foot, can you imagine 
that you know people well, we just like, came from that direction why, moses why are we, we just came there? from there well i forgot why we to get, get couldn't we have done that when we were back there in the come on that's right that's crazy <laughs> all right so you you've gotten to this place and now we're entering into even more detail as far as the uh chronology and the the itinerary mm-hmm. the travel route so you can pick up and i would say we can just sort of look at what the Moses scroll offers in terms of a travel itinerary and and kind of bounce back and forth with the text of the Pentateuch and see what it yeah, says. I, yeah, that'd be good. All right, well, let, let's kick. This is where we're up to. Yep. And uh, this is B6 mm-hmm. in the Moses scroll. And Elohim said unto me, you are crossing today of, of the children of Esau who dwell in Seir. Do not harass them. Do not strive against them in battle because I did not give it as a possession to you from that land because it was given as a possession to the sons of Esau. Mm -hmm. Now, the Horites dwelt in it from antiquity, but the children of Esau dispossessed them and they dwelt in their stead. Ross. The Horites. Who are the Horites? Mm, The Horites. I tell you. Who are the Horites? This particular, by the way, if someone wanted to know what the Pentateuch says in regards to the border of the children of Esau and Seir, we're basically in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 2. And and we won't go through all the details of that, but uh, it's a lot more complex if you read beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, and work your way through. But we want to focus on one thing. And that's uh, this detail about the Horites. I wanted to pick up, and if you have another idea and you want to jump in, Jono, please do. But look at chapter 2, verse 12 of Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. Similarly, Seir was formerly inhabited by the Horites, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them, wiping them out and settling in their place just as Israel did in the land they were to possess, which the Lord had given to them. Now, what what strikes you about that, Jonah? That's a problem, Ross. I don't know what we're going to do about that. That's a little bit of, um, uh, what is that, prophetic? What what do we call that, Ross? I mean, seeing into the future and and saying that uh, just as Israel conquered the land, so did Esau conquer Israel their land from the Horites. Yeah, let's, there's, there's a let's, problem there chronologically. Yeah, let's highlight that for a second, because if we assume, as tradition has us believe, that Moses wrote this, this is called an anachronism. It clearly, very clearly, is written at a later state uh, after, at least after, the Israelites' conquest of the Holy Land. I mean, there's Mm. no way to put it. In fact, the Jewish Study Bible has a note there, as Israel did to possess. Here, the Israelite conquest of the land is represented as already having been completed, conflicting with the attribution to Moses and the narrative setting in Transjordan prior to the conquest. The Mm. anachronism reflects the date of composition of this section. So uh, this is clearly written later. Now, what is interesting, when we look at the Moses scroll, guess what is lacking? The anachronism. Mm. It only says the Horites dwelled in it from antiquity, but the children of Esau dispossessed them and they dwelled in their stead. 
There's no anachronism there. There's no anachronism. Interesting. Now, As is the case, by the way, we should just mention that every time there is an anachronism anywhere, in you don't have any of those appearing in the Moses Scroll. That's right. That's right. Now, what's interesting is that if this were following, like we, we just read from chapter 2, verse 12 of Deuteronomy, but where it continues, uh, the Horites dwelled in it from antiquity is also mentioned in chapter 2 of verse 22. It skips past some other journey, as if you're going mm-hmm. backwards and forward. And uh, 2 verse 22 says in Deuteronomy, as he did for the descendants of Esau who lived in Seir when he wiped out the Horites before them so that they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as is still the case. There's another anachronism indicating mm-hmm. that's not something that a contemporary writer would say. It's someone reflecting later saying, you know, God did that to the... Oh, and it's still like that now, indicating mm. a later Even time. Even today it is still the case, yeah. Even today. That's right. Just to highlight again, where it says, you are crossing today a border of the children of Esau who dwell in Seir, do not harass them. That is, that's Elohim speaking there, um, Moses recording what Elohim has said to him. And then... Moses adds the details in regards to the Horites. It's an interesting thing that, uh, and it should be noticed and, and noted, and we note this when we go through the Pentateuch as well, evidently uh, Israel is not the first to receive a covenant of land. Um, uh, Esau uh, have been given land by Elohim, and he says as much, I've given it to them as a possession, and he did so by dispossessing a people mm-hmm. and enabling Esau to take possession of that land. Yeah. It's not as if the, uh, it doesn't say anything about the Horites. It doesn't judge them morally. It doesn't say I've, uh, I, I'm kicking them out of their land because they were bad, because they misbehaved, because they did X, Y, Z. It just says that the uh, children of Esau dispossessed them and they dwelt in their stead. By the way, Ross, mm-hmm. children of Esau, what does Deuteronomy render? In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy renders the sons of your brothers. It changes that to the sons of your brothers, concurring with uh, the narrative of Jacob and Esau uh, in Genesis, no doubt. But that's interesting. There's that. Let me see. Oh, oh, let me quote from. Now you were just talking. Can I? Can I say this? You were just talking to Shimon Gibson before we came on this program. Just to remind everybody who Shimon Gibson is. Yes, Shimon Gibson is a brilliant archaeologist uh, specializing in Jerusalem. I mean, he has spent most of his life, even as a young uh, uh, 10, 12 years old. He, he worked in Jerusalem. He's been on so many archaeological projects. He co-leads uh, Mount Zion Dig Project. But in addition to all that, he also specializes in 19th century Jerusalem. And this is the important part for me, especially with the research on Shapira, he identifies himself as a Shapiraologist. So he's a big fan of Shapira and and uh, this whole story about Shapira and, and his work in Jerusalem. So we were back and okay. forth on WhatsApp right before this program tonight. Mm-hmm. Okay, because it was, it says because it was given. The reason why I bring that up is because uh, evidently the Israelites, as I said, were not the first to be given land by Elohim. And just quote it, like when I looked up uh, Edom and the history thereof and the archaeological evidence, um, just just in a quick wiki search, actually, mm-hmm. uh, the wiki quotes from Shimon Gibson from 2001, quote, the Edomites who have been archaeologically identified 
were a Semitic people who probably arrived in the region around the 14th century BCE. Mm. So that's, that's uh, a quote from Shimon Gibson I found interesting. So there we are. Oh, another thing, the border. There's a question, Ross. There is a question. Did they cross the border into uh, the land of Edom or did they skirt the border? Did they pass along the border or did they actually cross into the border? That's a question. It is. It, it's in, a, in, re, in regards it's, to Edom, also in regards to the territory of Moab. It, you, you uh, brought we, that, we can talk about that later. No, I'll just touch it. You brought that to me, and that is a very good... We need to really look at this because what we are translating as cross or pass, you know, those can indicate two different things, and it's... Uh, in Hebrew, the root word is ayin beit resh, and and so that can mean either one. So we really need to go through, and you and I are doing this together, by the way. We're going through the translation and looking for consistency in context. Do they cross? Mm. Do they skirt? Uh, those are very important. But we do know this, that the context says that when they... Uh, uh, cross or pass, whichever the case may be, do not harass them. Don't strive against them in battle. So it almost indicates, you know, you have to wonder, I think it might be skirt or or pass because uh, it would be hard for a, a monarch or a ruler to not see it as an invasive act if you brought you know, uh, uh, 603,550 men plus women, children, goats, and chickens, if they saw that coming, that might be harassing. You know what I mean? So maybe it is... Yeah, well, it's certainly, it's certainly cause for concern and would rally any army to be prepared. And uh, whether or not you're going to engage with that army is a different thing. And if you're clearly just sticking to the normal trade route, you're, you're just traveling the, the the roads that are there... Perhaps that's well and good if it's on the border, but to cross into the border is it would be regarded as a uh, perhaps a threatening uh, gesture that that might engage in war. Right. So that's interesting. And also, uh, I found Judges chapter eighteen verse uh, Judges chapter eleven verse eighteen. That's the story of Yefta, crazy story, Ross, that goes uh-huh. on. You know, suggesting that he sacrificed his daughter and all this sort of stuff. But up to that point, he has a, a conversation with. The king of Moab, the, evidently the king of Moab, some centuries later, is like, hey, you took this land. In actual fact, they took it from the Amorites. But he's saying, oh, you took this land here north of um, Moab. That was actually Moab, and we want it back. Uh-huh. And Yifta's like, well, no, no. Let, let me let me give you a little history lesson, dude. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, in, and that's really interesting. He refers to them as the uh, children of Chemosh. Uh, uh-huh. Who's Chemosh? He is the god of Moab, and by the way, this particular god is mentioned on the Moabite Stella. It uh, is. You know, that's so that's right. a very interesting deal, yeah. A lot could be said about that, um, but it's interesting in just a matter of um, centuries. Uh, it goes from a land given to Moab by Elohim to uh, a people that are regarding themselves as the people of Chemosh, and that that land was given to them by by this uh, foreign god. It's interesting, but in any case, um, Judges 11 goes on to uh, say that, you know, it basically gives him a history lesson. And does that concur with the Moses scroll? Does it even concur with Deuteronomy? It doesn't because uh, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 28 and 29 suggests that they actually went into and crossed into the borders of Moab and uh, 
and Esau, whereas um, uh, Judges 18 says they didn't. In any case, moving on. Just, uh, we're just going to just moving, was, moving on. Go ahead. It doesn't agree. Yeah. Judges and Deuteronomy doesn't agree, but we're just moving on. So go ahead, Jonah. Did, did you want to <laughs> no, say anything further? No, about I, that? you said enough. <laughs> I just, I just wanted to People highlight. People can do their research there. That's right. Yeah, good no, point. And, and, but, uh, but it's, it's not a problem with the Moses Scroll. Now, um, Esau disposed. Okay, coming back to here, you read from uh, Deuteronomy chapter two, verses ten to twelve. Most. In fact, I think pretty much all English translations put those verses in brackets. That's right. And they do so because they're admitting, we believe this was added later. This is like a, a scribal update, if you like. This is an anachronism. Yeah. It's added later. What's interesting is that, yes, some of it is, but in actual fact, what, what you're putting in brackets there appears in the some of it appears in I'm saying about a third of it that they that all the English translations put in brackets yep. chapter uh, verses 10 to 12 is actually derived from the Moses scroll they're saying oh this little bit here we just put it in brackets because it's actually a scribal update or it's a, or it's an anachronism or whatever and we're just putting it in just so you know but yeah you've kind of cut a chunk of the Moses scroll out and uh, lobbed it in there. You've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, English translations, just making the uh, point. Now, it's interesting. Let me wait. Let me throw one other point in there. The interesting thing about what's there in the Moses scroll versus what is not, this is interesting. Like if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 10 through 12, it mentions uh, the emim, okay? Is that in the Moses scroll? Does it mention the emim? Yeah. But does it say that they're great and numerous and as tall as the Anakites? You know, it's like none of the stuff about mm. giants uh, are mentioned in there, nor is the Nothing. anachronism. So that's what I find interesting. It's like a, a very clean version uh, that seems to make more sense. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about the Amim and the, the Horites and, the, and so on yep. and so forth and the Giants and so on. We'll get there eventually. This is B10 of the Moses Scroll, and we turned and we passed, and this is just pretty much the same, we turned and we passed the wilderness of Moab. Uh-huh. And Elohim said to me, you are passing today the border of Moab. Do not harass them and do not strive against them in battle because I did not give it to you a possession from their land because I gave it to the children of Lot, the possession of Ar. Rephaim dwelt in it from antiquity, and the Moabites called them Emim, and Elohim destroyed them, and they dwelt in their stead. Wow, Ross, yep. Lot. Right, the children of Lot. Is there anything different between what we find in the Moses scroll and Deuteronomy here? Oh, I bet there is. Go on. <laughs> no, I... I was just asking because it's this this is interesting. When you look at the children of Lot, according to what we know from biblical history, Lot and his two daughters have children. Everyone knows the story. They flee the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. And, and what happens is they get daddy... Uh, a little bit of wine, and and uh, people can read that. It's very. You talk about a in the strange words of, story. I, re- I remember when we. I remember when we talked about this in the first season of of Torah Pels, Yeah. Uh, with Nehemiah Gordon and Keith Keith Johnson, and I remember Nehemiah saying, "You know, look, these people would have been on the Jerry Springer show." <laughs> that's right. That's that's a good way this to describe story. it. Yeah, and and oh what's goodness. interesting is the boys' names. Uh, you know, when you think about the boys' names, they indicate, you know, where they come from. 
and so Moab is one of these, and Moab means uh, from father, right? Is that is that a pretty good translation mm-hmm. there? So mm-hmm. so we get these really strange stories that that creep in, but this is the territory, and so. Uh, and it goes back to those stories that we have of the patriarchal narratives in Genesis 19. They they flee from Sodom and Gomorrah. People debate exactly where Sodom and Gomorrah are located. Uh, but most people believe generally that Lot and his daughters end up in a cave on the eastern side of uh, what we would call Transjordan. Uh, so this is mm-hmm. the region where those people are. All right. Now, now I wish we, we had a map. If we have a map, or most people can look in their Bibles. Most Bibles have a good map, and, and these are key locations yep. uh, when you, you look at what we're going through here. So you could follow the route of the children of Israel. You know, when they cross through Seir and Edom, mm-hmm. uh, and they go into the Transjordanian region, we're covering clear marked places. We crossed the Wadi Zered. Well, Zered is on the map. It's at the lower end of the Dead Sea on the eastern side. And you can see that. So you could follow and make sure that this is uh, following the, uh, the order mm. of the march. One point I want to make about the Wadi Zered. So what, what you just read, the Amim are mentioned in Deuteronomy... Uh, chapter 2, mm-hmm. but here you would have to go back up to verse 13 uh, to see this in Deuteronomy chapter 2. Up now, across the Wadi Zered, and we cross the Wadi Zered, the time we spent in travel, and then there's another sort of editorial note uh, about the timing. We won't get into that uh, because it's a little bit confusing if you read Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 14 in the reference to 38 years and you you do a little study and you read for instance uh, Numbers chapter 20 uh, you get a little bit of difference there so but that's maybe for another discussion. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned by the way you mentioned Emim okay so you mentioned that uh, Deuteronomy likens them to the Anakites. Uh-huh. We have no uh, as we mentioned before in in uh, earlier programs there's no archaeological evidence for Anakites at all, nor does the Moses scroll ever mention the Anakites. Yeah. Uh, and Anakites are understood to be giants and we'll have more to say about it. By the way, Ross, I mean, yeah. really, you'd think archaeological evidence of giants would be even easier to find because it's just bigger stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's plenty of archaeological evidence for for uh, Edomites and Moabites and Ammonites and Canaanites and um, Amorites and so on and so forth. But you'd think that be uh, the, the blatantly obvious archaeological evidence uh, would be for the Anakites because their stuff is just bigger. Yeah, yeah. In fact, we haven't, uh, we, we won't necessarily get there tonight, I don't think, unless you want to talk about it now. But but this battle with Og, uh, the king of Bashan and you know, mm-hmm. talking about big people, he's a big guy. He's a he's a giant. He's got a big, big Apparently bed. Apparently so. Yeah, <laughs> got a big, big bed according to uh, Deuteronomy. But you don't find it in the Moses scroll. Okay, hang on a second before we get there. Right. The existence of the kingdom of Moab, and this again this is just a quick wiki search. You can find this. Uh, the existence of the kingdom of Moab prior to the rise of the Israelite state has been deduced from a colossal statue erected at Luxor by Pharaoh Ramses II the second 
in the 13th century BCE, which lists Mu'ab as uh, among a series of nations conquered during the campaign. Let me add one other thing. We We mentioned just a moment ago uh, this stella that was discovered in uh, Moab in the late ni- uh, 19th century by Reverend mm. Klein, the, the Moabite stella. I, Jono, when I tell you I can't wait for our next Tanakh tour because you and I have done so much research since we were there last. And I can't wait to get in front of the replica that's in the Israel Museum mm. and tell the story about uh, the Moabite stone or the Mesha Stella, as it's called, uh, because we cover this mm-hmm. in the Moses Scroll. It's a fascinating study, and uh, I just I look forward to the day that we're standing in the Israel Museum and I'm telling them why that stone got destroyed what was all involved. It's one of the classic cases in biblical archaeology that will blow people's minds. So looking forward to Mm, that. mm. Rephaim. Now, this is an interesting word, Ross. And again, they're likened to giants. We'll get there eventually. But Repha, I I think, means heal, to heal. Rephaim, would that then mean uh, ones who heal? I think so. I think that's probably the etymology there. It has something to do. Were uh, Were they somehow... Uh, good with medicinal things? I, I don't know. We just we have to assume that they must have been or they were known for this because of their name. That's that's a good way to describe maybe, it, I guess. Maybe they had, had health food stores on every corner in a pharmacy or something like that, perhaps. They could have. Maybe they were just into that stuff. Yeah, maybe, they were, maybe they were um, all into taking certain uh, remedies or... You know how people today use certain oils and, and uh, what do you call that? Mm. Just, you know... Maybe they're they good might have been this. essential oil people. They, they, they were selling essential oils. They were selling essential oils. There you go. That's what they were doing. Uh, Elohim destroyed them. So as opposed to, uh, you know, when it's talking about Esau, Esau dispossessed them. But here, Elohim destroyed them. Uh, when we go a little bit further, I think when we talk about uh, the, the children of Ammon, it says that the previous inhabitant of the previous inhabitants, it says Elohim destroyed them from before their faces. Yeah. Seems to be an escalation yeah, yeah. in each case, which is interesting. I'm not sure what to make of that. And uh, and again, no, there's no moral explanation as to why they have been dispossessed. Just mm-hmm. the uh, authoritative statement from God that they have been, like yeah. it or not. That's right. Now we, we turned. Jump. Shall I we, keep going? Well, yeah. we, we will, but we jumped from... Uh, we just read, and we crossed the Wadi Zered, and Elohim mm-hmm. spoken to me, saying, Arise and qu- cross the Wadi Arnon. Now, if mm-hmm. you're following in the Bible, you'll have to jump all the way down to chapter 2 and verse 24. Notice that we're going backwards and forwards. We're, we're going forward in the text, and then we're going back. But if you look at a map, the Moses scroll is following the order of the lay of the land, which is very yep. interesting. Okay. Yeah. So that's where we're that's at. That's right. And that's exactly what's happening. We turned and we crossed the Wadi Zered, and Elohim spoke to me, saying, Arise and cross the Wadi Arnon. Today I have begun to give before you Sion, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. And we went out to meet Sion towards Jahaz, and we smote him until no survivor remained to him. Uh, and we captured all of his cities from Aroa, which is on the rim of the Wadi Arnon, to the Gilad, and unto the Wadi Jabuk. Mm-hmm. The entirety Elohim gave before us, Ross. Yeah, I think, again, as you follow this along, if you read 
through uh, chapter 2, beginning, uh, say, by the time you get to chapter 2, verse 26, there's a long story about a conversation with Sihon. Hey, let me just get a little bit of water, you know, whatever food we'll buy, we'll, Mm. you know, back and forth. There's a lot of dialogue there. Uh, you know, in a request, and the the request was refused, and and none of that uh, appears in the Moses scroll. Uh, it seems to be more of God says, "I'm going to deliver this people to you," and we smote him. Um, mm. You know, I, and and by the way, the the Hebrew there, nacha, I, I like the English word smote. I could have picked another word, but you know, <laughs> you uh, like smote. I like smote. To be smitten is uh, mm. is what God smotes people, and and that's that's good ele- elegant uh, English there. So you might help me if you don't like that, but but it's it's a no, like total smote. total destruction, and and again we get this idea uh, if you follow along, if you look at a map, you'll see Zered, and then if you go north. So we have the children of Israel going north. There's no backtrack here. Mm. And they're going to the Wadi Arnon, which would be the next major Wadi. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so you'll see, if you follow along, you'll see the geography makes sense. So God is giving them this land, and, uh, and, and, and it fits chronologically and geographically, it makes sense. And geographically. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense. Uh, so I have begun to give before you. So this is the second time that this has happened. The first time the children of Israel, as we read at the beginning of this program, they went, uh, the hill country, the Amorites, no, that's all right. You're, you're setting us up to die. And Elohim said, well, fine. So die in the wilderness yep. and I'll give it to your children. Here it is, giving it to the children. He says, today I have begun to give before you. And uh, and they didn't hesitate. They did go and meet uh, in battle. And they were, of course, victorious. Yep. In regards to smote, now this is an interesting thing, Ross. We mm-hmm. smote him until no survivor <clears throat> remained. Yeah. Um, how total were, was this? Uh, was this smoting? Uh, when it says the entirety that Elohim gave before us, uh, how entire? How do you understand this? And I ask the question because in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy adds uh, in uh, two thirty-four, I think it says. At that time, we took all his towns and completely destroyed them, and then adds men, women, and children, we left no survivors. Now, the the Moses scroll doesn't have that. Deuteronomy adds that twice, but it's not derived from the Moses scroll. Your thoughts? Yeah, I I wonder, because um, it it seems that particularly once you get into Deuteronomy and then you move into particularly Joshua and the conquest uh, of the land— you get this repeated. A lot of scholars refer to this as uh, harem. Uh, in Hebrew, the idea of harem, uh, het resh mim, is an utter ban of destruction. Men, women, children, so forth. I, I don't see that so much as indicated here, and, and this is open a little bit to uh, interpretation, but it seems to be focused on uh, the king and perhaps, uh, you know, maybe those that were officially with him. I don't see it as a total destruction of every living mm. thing. That That is stressed in Deuteronomy. It is not stressed here. Twice, yeah. And, and you have to wonder if maybe it was a, a defeat of the military, a defeat of perhaps the leadership, 
what do you think? Do you think it could be more? Clearly, Deuteronomy well, wants to indicate more. It's an interesting thing to uh, to do a study, at least in the Pentateuch, to see what the general rule was in, in the engagement of war. And, um, and we do see that... Uh, the king, the fighting men, uh, perhaps the sons of the king, the successors of the king, were put to the sword. There's a, there's a number of passages that would concur with with that idea, but nowhere does it suggest that everybody must die. It, 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 these are two exceptions. The other one is found in Deuteronomy uh, 3.6, where it uh, elaborates in the same way. We completely destroyed them, as we had done with Sion, the king of Heshbon, destroying every city men, women, and children. Mm -hmm. Also, the Pentateuch, and this is why I mentioned this before, the Pentateuch goes to great lengths to incriminate, uh, morally incriminate the uh, dispossessed. Uh, And we see that in in Genesis 15, 16, Leviticus 18, 24 to 30, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4, uh, chapter 12, verses 29 to 31, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. It it really does go to great lengths to morally justify the action of what appears twice in Deuteronomy to be genocide, like a total genocide. Yeah. But, uh, but the question has to be asked, did that really happen? It doesn't appear in the Moses, Moses scroll. It's certainly not explicit. And uh, taking the, the broader picture uh, of the Pentateuch, it, it seems like the rules of war extend to those who take up arms, you know, take upon themselves the risk of war, uh, the king and the king's successor. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're at in this passage. Now, shall we continue, Ross? Uh, we are uh, currently at the Battle of, of uh, Jachaz. Maybe we can pick mm. up there next week. What do you think? I think that's a good idea uh, because I've been saying that we're going to get to uh, the giants, the Rephaim, the Amim, and the Azanzumim, and talking about that in a little bit more detail. But to do that is going to require a lot more time, and we will go into detail with this next time we talk. We got any parting thoughts, Ross? I did get a note today. Uh, Mel Finney. Mel Finney wrote, and hey. uh, yeah, he said that he was asking about another program that we had done, and he said I just downloaded uh, some of the classes that I'm doing on Saturday morning, Honest to Moses series, and uh, he says he's from the city of Liverpool in England. Uh, and oh, there you go. Yeah, so he, we've got some people overseas listening to us, and he says he loves it. And uh, keep up the good work. So thank you, Mel. Thanks for writing in. Yeah, and thanks. So we look good forward stuff. to we look forward to uh, next week's class. And I think that's a that's a wrap, Jonah. That's some good stuff, man. That's it. We'll be back with you this time next week. And until then, have a great one. Have a beautiful.